0: Welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Professor Ur Ungar, author of Paramilitarism, Mass Violence in the Shadow of the State, published by Oxford University Press, September 2nd, 2020. Uh, Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. So first, how did you get into um, studying and writing a book on this subject?
1: Well, I um, uh, I got a research grant in the year 2014 from the Dutch Research Council, mm-hmm. um, which was a project that in which you have to appoint two PhD students, and it was a larger project in which I uh, I thought it would be interesting to do a comparative study of paramilitarism different countries, mm-hmm. and the two PhD students then worked on, one of them worked on Turkey in the 1990s, and the other one worked on Serbia or Yugoslavia in the 1990s.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so part of this project, you have to write a monograph at the end of it. It's a five-year project. Um, so I finished the project. I did the research, finished the project. The PhD students uh, finished uh, their own projects, and so we have uh, basically three, uh, three studies. Mm-hmm. One of them them is my monograph, and the other ones are the case studies. Mm -hmm. So that's that's basically how the project um, developed. And I got the idea when I was doing, uh, back in 2009, a postdoc at the University College Dublin at the Center for War Studies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Over there, Professor Robert Gerhardt, he uh, ran a project which was on paramilitarism in the aftermath of the First World War on the Freikorps Corps and on some of these um, militias that emerged in the aftermath of defeat, especially in Austro-Hungary and in Germany, mm-hmm. but also in the Ottoman Empire and in the Russian, uh, uh, Russian Empire that had crumbled by then. And so back then, I kind of had the idea where I started reading about paramilitary groups and about pro-state militias and these type of groups. And then I realized there's no, there's no one overview book, hmm. and so really because of the The fact that there's a gap, I mean, there are studies on Indonesia and on Latin American countries and on uh, on Yugoslavia specifically or on Chechnya, but there was no one book that kind of covered broader ground than just the case studies. So because of this gap, I basically decided to write it. Mm
0: -hmm. So I see from the uh, book description, uh, it mentions Sudan, Colombia, uh, Belfast, Kurdistan, um, can you tell me, uh, what regions you cover and sort of what time periods also we're looking at?
1: Yeah. So th- this book is, is mostly a let's say a conceptual and a theoretical book. Mm-hmm. And it uses, um, case studies from actually really from around the world. Mm-hmm. So some of the places mentioned on the book cover, uh, are included, but then there are more, there are others. Mm-hmm. So for example, in the, uh, uh, the broad introduction, uh, the introductory chapter, really the chapter two, which is titled "Paramilitarism's Long 20th Century," I basically start in the in the early modern period, really, mm-hmm. with some of the Italian condottieri, and then I go through the 19th century, uh, the Ottoman experience, the kind of the Balkans paramilitarism in the Balkans, mm-hmm. and then I really slow down with the 20th century because I think it's interesting to look at how paramilitarism as a phenomenon, became a modern phenomenon in the 20th and 21st century. Mm-hmm. And that, so that includes, you know, obviously, you, can, you know, examples from Germany, from uh, Yugoslavia, uh, from, uh, of course, Ireland. Uh, I look a little bit into China. Uh, interwar China is really interesting. Hmm. Of course, you get these different cliques who uh, are fighting on behalf of one or the other states. It's more like a confederation of warlords. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And, of course, Latin America, which most of the paramilitarism is. When we think about paramilitarism in Latin America, we think about the 1970s. But really, there are deeper historical roots going back to the 1930s. And then, basically, I take it in the post-war era, uh, paramilitary groups on the U.S. side of the Cold War, on the Soviet side of the Cold War, um, which which was the main driving force, really. Mm -hmm. A little bit, of course, on the Global South. Latin America, Central Africa, uh, so and in, in, Indonesia, especially 1965. That's been a very important period. And then a little bit of post-Cold War Europe, uh, Armenia, uh, so the Nagorno-Karabakh War, Chechnya, basically anywhere where I can find some decent materials, where the scholarship is somewhat developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have exam- examples from it. In some cases, are very well developed in one aspect of paramilitarism, such as organized crime. In other case uh, there are great studies on the relationship between the militias and the states mm-hmm. so basically where the literature takes you
0: so you know when you're do- when you're listing all these different countries the thing that comes to mind is um how can one term paramilitarism cover what i would imagine are, are very different sort of uh organizations because of culture or maybe the political systems that they're working in um can you sort of just dis- Define paramilitarism, how, how it's used uh, for this study.
1: Yeah, that's a, an excellent question. I think that this was really one of the major challenges. You know? How can we explain that paramilitarism has emerged in culturally, technologically, politically very different societies? Um, and here we basically looked, or I, I looked in this book at the uh, the key issue of the relationship between the state. Uh, and the paramilitaries on the ground. So first and foremost, I define paramilitaries as uh, armed groups that are fighting for or on behalf of a state. So I exclude groups that fight against the state, that are very often covered under the study of rebels, Mm -hmm. um, or non-state armed groups, as they they call them sometimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I look uh, really at those who fight for the status quo, for the state. And then, of course, you see a broad variety of uh, of cases from Colombia all the way up to China and Indonesia, uh, but I'm all, I've always been interested in let's say three elements really. Uh, I looked at three dimensions of these very different cases. One is the relationship between the state and these paramilitaries. Second, the relationship between uh, organized crime or criminalization and these paramilitaries, mm-hmm. these militias. And number three, I looked at the uh, the violence. Uh, that these paramilitaries committed. Mm-hmm. If you look at these three things, you see a variety, but you also see uh, if you're you know, if you're open-minded to this kind of comparative analysis, you also find some uniformity or you find similarities. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the best of my abilities, I I try to look at those similarities while not while not disregarding the very real differences of course
0: that exist. Let me ask you about uh, the second one, organized crime and paramilitaries. You know, you say they are armed groups that fight for a state, and then, you know, how how does organized crime get involved in that? Yes.
1: This is one of the, really, it was, for me, it was one of the most difficult things to, to study. So um, crime is basically, it's as old as, as humankind, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are like, different f- forms of crime across centuries, across, across con- continents. But as diverse as, as, as it is, it basically has two essential features. It is covert, and it relies on private violence. And these two elements of, of, of crime, organized crime, is, can come in very handy for states when they are interested in, or for certain regimes or governments that are interested in setting up um, paramilitary groups. Because it allows them a form of cover and uh, plausible deniability. Of distancing, distancing, socially, politically, distancing mechanisms uh, that they otherwise can't uh, can't do really. Mm. So, in each and every country-specific case, uh, organized crime was was very heavily involved in either as a cause of paramilitarism. So you know, these militias were often recruited from uh, the organized crime milieu. Best example is as is and has always been Archon, the infamous Serbian uh, mafia boss who turned into a paramilitary warlord during the uh, Yugoslav war of uh, succession and dissolution mm-hmm. uh, really interesting here, here you know here you have a guy who's who's on the search list for Interpol who's wanted for bank robbery uh, for grand larceny for violent um, the violent crimes property crimes uh, smuggling of, of drugs uh, human trafficking or any and all types of crimes you can come up with and so he's he's searched by he's on a top wanted list in like three four European countries, the Netherlands, Sweden, Germany, uh, Italy, and this mob boss all of a sudden, in the late 80s, let's say 1989, he disappears from Western Europe. He all of a sudden appears in Belgrade and he's hanging out with some of the political top brass, mm-hmm. and that's a bit of a big, kind of th- this is a paradox. How is it possible that a man like this, who in in essence his activities are against the state, mm-hmm. uh, and that he becomes Co-opted by certain political actors, but very powerful political actors, and then becomes, so, and, and then a year later, all of a sudden he appears in Bosnia and Herzegovina or in Croatia, and he's burning villages, um, and he's, uh, uh, committing ethnic cleansing and all types of massacres and other, and other war crimes.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Ur Unger, author of Paramilitarism, Mass Violence in the Shadow of the State. You can find more information about his work on his Twitter feed. Ur-Umit Unger, spelled U-G-U-R-U-M-I-T-U-N-G-O-R. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast. So, speaking of that, so what you just described, it also seems to me I often think of paramilitarism as um, requiring people who have sort of a and not to be, you know, not making a political judgment, but, uh, have sort of a, a, a criminal streak to them, you know, a bit of brutality, a bit of, uh, willing to break the rules. Um, how often do, mo- do most of these paramilitary groups that you've studied, are they linked to authoritarian regimes most of the time or this, all the time?
1: This was one of the things that, that puzzled me actually when I started the research, right? So. Um, to what extent are these type of paramilitary groups that are recruited from the demi monde and they, and they operate in this shadowy uh, space, um, let's it be under the state, but actually really beyond state institutions? You know, to to what extent is this um, you know is this kind of you know, a regular thing or an irregular thing for uh, particular regimes? Mm-hmm. But then the interesting thing is then you know you look at democratic. Or at least, let's say, nominally democratic uh, regimes and governments, such as uh, Colombia, for example, in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, you look at Turkey in the 1990s. Then, really, um, we we need to realize that there seems to be really no correlation between regime type and uh, paramilitaries and co-optation with organized crime. Mm-hmm. So authoritarian regimes do not all create paramilitary groups some of them are actually pretty happy with their police their army and their intelligence agencies mm-hmm. as the three major pillars of of uh, coercive force and um, and on the other hand we would say that democracies of course they have accountability mm-hmm. uh, they have transparency uh, and even for uh, you know in ordinary democracies one of police. Uh, fires even one bullet, and there's an investigation, mm-hmm. and there's a full accounting actually of this uh, this act of uh, violence. So you would say that you know democracies don't set up these kind of murky, um, you know, 50, 60 men strong militias that operate in the shadows and and that and that target, for example, political uh, opposition yeah. uh, figures, uh, or they do they go into ethnic cleansing of indigenous groups, for example, or of, uh, of ethnic minorities. Mm-hmm. One would argue that. But the, this is one of the surprises for me, too, is that in both authoritarian regimes and in democracies, uh, it is much more important to look at kind of the uh, patrimonialism, so the kind of strong personal relations between certain politicians, heads of agencies, and these uh, you know, powerful, strong men that later become paramilitaries. Mm-hmm. Those personal ties are much more important, really, than whether a regime is overly... Is, uh overly authoritarian or or more democratic
0: hmm that's kind of a how should i put it scary statement what would you say among the among the paramilitary groups you found, found or d- studied which were were you most surprised used paramilitaries uh for whatever reason well,
1: that's an interesting one i think that um if we, if we let's say, have a bias against authoritarian regimes, mm-hmm. as in other violent anyway and they're brutal thugs, etc., then maybe I'm most surprised by the fact that um, the type of paramilitaries that I look at uh, were in some regimes not used at all.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, for example, you t- take the take the Soviet Union under Stalinism, a deeply violent uh, regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, a deeply violent regime that ran most most of its violence through its formal institutions, so either the army, or the police, or the NKVD, which later became the KGB, mm-hmm. which ran a prison system, the Gulag, mass executions, and things like that. But paramilitary groups were not really involved. You don't you don't get these, uh, you know, thuggish groups of men who, are, who have personal ties to Stalin and Stalin then threatens even his colleagues in the Politburo with them. That that never happened. And that's maybe a surprising, uh, a surprising case, mm-hmm. uh, a case of, in which it was absent, let's say, but a case in which it was present. Um, I do think that, for example, Indonesia is a very interesting case in that regard. But you have the 1965 Indonesian the coup d'état and the genocide, in which roughly 600,000 communists and alleged communists are uh, executed, uh, and are dumped in mass graves or in rivers. What is interesting is that Indonesia, despite having a very strong army, and because of the coup d'état, even becoming a militaristic authoritarian regime with a clear authoritarian leader like Suharto and a, and a very strong army structure, a very loyal army also that, that didn't uh, fragment and politicize. Despite that, they used all these militias as proxies to carry out all these these killings. Mm-hmm. And I think that was that was a little surprising for me. You know, why use these people? Why you have perfectly functioning
0: army why not run it through the army so how so it sounds like um as far as training organization weapons that sort of thing all these groups it sounds like it was um as you said about 50 maybe 50 men uh probably tied together by you know personal cultural maybe family ties you know lightly armed just kind of maybe with a it sounds like they just have like one head, maybe one or two leaders who, you know, sort of charismatic leaders. Is that, is that a fair way to describe these groups you looked at? I think so. I think um, a lot of these groups, if you take a look at their internal
1: structure and the, their their genesis, their development, and also sometimes their demise and their kind of disbandment, then you roughly see that you see uh, kind of charismatic leadership. You see. Either regional, class, or family ties, or ethno-religious ties. Um, and you see, in, in some cases, they can be, of course, many. They can be thousands. Mm. But if you break break that down, and like beyond beyond the kind of nominal uh, perspective of, for example, you know the, the Tigers in Serbia, mm. or the Janjaweed in uh, in Darfur, for example, um, uh, or or the kind of these type of death squads in Argentina in the nineteen seventies. Then, then if you look under it, then there there's always a kind of core group of roughly, you know, 40, 50, 60 men were tied to a particular leader, uh, almost in a type of um, organized, almost as an organized crime family, really
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, personal loyalty, very their personal loyalty uh, and taking orders from those from those leaders and ultimately also very dependent on the uh, the, the strategy that these that these leaders, um, you know, uh, point out for themselves mm-hmm. um, so rather than a much kind of broader almost abstract way of thinking about paramilitaries you also have to look at it from this perspective when you break it down and you zoom into these groups then you always see people like that and i offer a couple of vignettes also these mm-hmm. these um very kind of rambunctious and deeply violent uh, men
0: and- have you found situations where any of these groups fought outside of the country you know for for military objectives or, or maybe some other reason outside of where they they were based
1: few there are i think a very few number a kind of small number of uh of paramilitary groups who fought outside of the country very often it was a kind of domestic conflict mm-hmm. um, and um, it was of course a little easier to hide them also domestically. Uh, through distancing, these type of distancing uh, mechanisms, uh, there are maybe one or two, like the Janjaweed maybe were involved briefly in a, in a Central African Republic, maybe, uh, but not, but not, not much. Uh, maybe some of Gaddafi's militias were you know, roaming around, uh, you know, Central Africa, but their major tasks were always domestic, mm-hmm. almost always domestic. Yeah, that's the interesting. That's the interesting, uh, and it's also, I think, that's also telling in itself, uh, the fact that. These are mostly used for, for domestic purposes. It means that this is a, you know, primarily political. This is about the the balance of power inside the society, mm-hmm. rather than kind of uh, a form of uh, shadow diplomacy or dirty tricks uh, uh, that, that uh, these regimes play uh, externally. Mm-hmm. There are, of course, a couple of maybe examples that, or examples that don't entirely fit. So, for example, the United States has used some of these militias in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. like uh, Uzbek militias, for
2: example,
1: Mm -hmm. ethnic or or, or other forms of personalized militias, Uh, you might say, okay, these are American mercenaries or these are American uh, proxy paramilitary groups. Uh, You could argue that, and some colleagues have argued that, and I think that's that's fairly legitimate to say that. On the other hand, these are also internal Afghan dynamics. Mm -hmm. And these groups, they they don't uh, travel across the border to go and fight somewhere else. Mm-hmm. They have maybe financial interests and they have business interests, and they invest in some other countries. But their violence is primarily domestic.
0: Mm-hmm. What about them makes you label them paramilitary versus, say, para, you know, police or para law enforcement or, or something like that? Where does the military part really come in?
1: That's also a I think a terrific question really to think about because um, in 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 principle some some of these groups, of course, they. Um, you know, they've been involved in a number of conflicts or they've committed violence that you might argue are kind of parapolice, such as swarming neighborhoods, such as um, uh, arresting, kidnapping, and killing or forcibly disappearing, like particular individuals from a political opposition. Mm-hmm. Right? So th- these are really almost like the intelligence agencies' work. Um, and they're, they're not really, let's say, paramilitary, would say. Mm-hmm. But I think that the paramilitary, the military aspect comes when we're dealing with very often an insurgency such as in Colombia, I think was a perfect example, uh, right? We have the FARC, of course, that was a major insurgency for, for decades really mm-hmm. um, and in order to, uh, or the uh, the example of the, the, Turkey, the conflict between the Turkish state and the Kurdish PKK, the, the Kurdistan uh, Workers Party, mm-hmm. these are insurgencies that develop because basically we have a lack of democratic space in these societies to incorporate these forms of uh, these these uh, rebel groups as political groups mm-hmm. i mean had there been the democratic space then the farc would have been a political party they would have been in parliament etc mm-hmm. and the same for these for the kurdish political parties in turkey um but because this space was uh unavailable or wasn't allowed for the wasn't uh, tolerated they became uh, in, like violent insurgencies that sustained themselves with uh, various sources, and in these insurgencies, when in both of these cases and in other cases, when the insurgency was too much of a threat to the central state, uh, or it was very difficult to root it out through conventional means, namely through you know military strategy run by the army or by the gendarmerie, then some of these regimes, or the groups of politicians, cartels really, they resorted to these paramilitary groups Outside of it. the law operating outside of the law, masked, armed, uh sent out to these villages uh to assault not these armed groups themselves, but really the civilian base of these armed groups. So you see these paramilitary groups in uh in Colombia, for example, mm-hmm. massacring massacring villages that were that were suspected of supporting the FARC. Oh the Turkish paramilitary groups that that, that burnt villages, forcibly disappeared and killed people, mass executed them. Uh, Because they were, you know, supposedly or allegedly helping out the PKK. Mm -hmm. I think in the context of that type of armed conflict, of course, it's a low intensity armed conflict. Mm -hmm. Uh, You see that these type of groups, they operate under the table and not with like military objectives, but really with paramilitary objectives, which is uh, looking at the uh, committing violence against the civilians that surround a conflict like this.
0: How often do you f- did you find in the different studies that the members of these paramilitary groups were either former military or, or police or were actually also military and police at the same time and also secretly doing paramilitary work?
1: That is a major, um, one of the major uh, common threads really that runs throughout all of these cases is that look at the profiles of these men. Yeah, there are a number of it's a criminals or professional criminals, among them. But most often, actually, there are people who are not necessarily in the security forces anymore, of whatever type. Yeah, so, uh, police, special police, gendarmerie, army, etc., or territorial army, or whatever. But those who were either were sidelines, uh, were discharged, or retired. People not in it, but people you know, gravi- you know, uh, revolving around, gravitating around these these uh, these formal. Uh, security forces. Right. So, for example, you have, of course, the in the uh, you have the Phoenix the, the Phoenix program. This was the CIA campaign to eliminate the Viet Cong,
2: mm-hmm.
1: kind of similar to Condor, to Operation Condor in Latin America, or Gladio in, in Europe. Uh, there was a paramilitary group called the Provincial Re- Reconnaissance Units, the PRU. These people were authorized to kill, to torture, and to detain suspected communists. Mm in uh, in southern Vietnam and most of the members, if you look at these members, some of them have written their memoirs. Actually, and you see, actually, there are former Vietnamese soldiers or former security personnel who were disgruntled and who kind of gave up because they, they thought this war isn't winnable. And but in this case, anti communism and especially the fact that they were allowed like new spaces to commit violence, mm-hmm. right? So before guys, you know, trying to fight the Viet Cong doesn't work. They're too strong. They're beating us. But now, actually, you can assault the civilians as well, so the suspected civilians that normally would have maybe some form of due process or if there's a legal there's legal boundaries to the violence. When mm-hmm. these boundaries are eliminated, then these men actually very often came back into action. And because of the fact that they were very often radicalized or brutalized in their previous careers, they very often became kind of very fanatical members of these paramilitary groups.
0: So you kind of already answered a question I wanted to ask, um, but, but I'll see if maybe there's more to the answer, which is, did these groups, were any of these groups developed before an insurgency started for whatever reason, and then because they were created, um, inspired an insurgency of some kind?
1: Um, I think that's also
0: absolutely one of the key issues.
1: These are really terrific questions. Um, I think both both of these uh, elements exist i think to some extent you have groups that were let's say there were there were in kuwait you know active groups that were uh really you know, on retainer mm-hmm. and these groups they existed and the, the heads of state they could use them if they wanted to but, but but they all they really became galvanized and mobilized when the when the insurgency really took off but it's also the fact that these insurgencies well, take the chechen case for example mm-hmm. and you have, you have basically two chechen civil wars Wars basically the first war uh, 1996, 94 to 96 and you have of course a conventional war against the, against the Russian army which the you know the Chechen rebels the insurgency basically loses and then in 1999 you have another insurgency that lasts for about let's say seven years and there's some skirmishes at the at the tail end of it until 2009 And if you look at the way that the first war was fought, mostly with the Russian Army, fairly regular run-of-the-mill war, really. And it was asymmetrical because the Chechens were outnumbered and outgunned. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, we, we didn't see the type of paramilitary groups, type of ruthless escalation of violence that we saw in the Second uh, Chechen War, where you saw these fighters called kontraktniki, the kind of contract fighters, were these tough guys hanging out at the gyms in Moscow and they would get together, you know, be armed, and they would get licensed to kill Mm-hmm. Send them off to these villages in Chechnya, and they would they committed some horrific atrocities there, mm-hmm. um, as well as local Chechen, we shouldn't forget that either, like pro Russian Chechen paramilitaries, mm-hmm. those who basically thought this, you know, the second insurgency is, is, is nonsense. You know, it's not going to bring us anything, and most of the fighters that have now been hardened Islamists. So let's fight the, you know, let's fight against these people. And of course, they got white Fiat's licensed to bear arms, you know, really wide licenses by the Russian government.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then you saw these particular groups that that gravitated around its leader, Ramzan Kadyrov, who was still the president of Chechnya, mm-hmm. uh, interestingly, but who started up as one of these paramilitary bosses. Right. It was also some somebody, by the way, who had, you know, who had a personal history in, in crime, mm-hmm. in organized crime. I and mean, he had committed a murder before he was boss of the paramilitary groups. Um, in which the rebels even went to the family of the victim and kind of pleaded not to take revenge against his family. But it, and this goes to show that the level of brutality and the level of paramilitarization that the che- second Chechen war saw, the first Chechen war hasn't, hasn't really witnessed that. Mm-hmm. It was the dynamic of the conflict that's also very much responsible for an escalation of these groups. Or at least, let me put it this way, of if, if there were, let's say, pro state militias before, such as in Northern Ireland, you had loyalists. You had, like, to some extent, even armed loyalists who would defend Ulster to the last man, etc. But then during the war, they became really galvanized, really armed, well better trained, more brutalized also, and also developed forms of collusion with the state, with the British government or British government agencies that wasn't possible before, Mm -hmm. let's say, in in the 70s. But by the 80s, already, that's a major thing. So the dynamic of the conflict definitely drives paramilitarism as well.
0: So I know. So as you said, these groups uh, sort of uh, exist in the shadows, operate in the shadows uh, for on behalf of the state. But how often do you find that they had sort of a uh, a notoriety or a actually not notoriety, sort of a, a a popular following among people, whether they knew their identities or not? You know, how often did you see them as sort of treated as heroes by certain elements of the state? Or the societies they were in.
1: Yes, that's a, uh, I think, a very real, uh, it's, it's a very, uh, let's say, productive way of looking at paramilitarism as well. Because we can't just say these are time, you know, these kind of elements from the edges of society, these kind of peripheral, marginal people that are band, banded together by the state and then sent off to this, uh, to, to some imagined enemy. Mm-hmm. No, they also very often they come from particular communities where they're considered as heroes, uh, committing violence for the good cause, mm-hmm. or at least some very often committing violence that, yeah, it's unfortunate that we have to do this, but it's necessary for the continuity of the state, or it's necessary uh, to uh, defend the enemies of Serbia or whatever, these type of kind of nationalist concepts as well. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, there's a prehistory of this, right? I mean, in, in this classic study, bandits. Um, hopsbaum you know he defined these social bandits as the type of outlaws who the state regards as criminals uh, but who remain within society considered by their own people as heroes mm-hmm. as champions or like avengers fighters for justice mm-hmm. or sometimes even leaders of liberation these types of things so social banditry you know, in that in that book i think still is very much valid uh, has a, a social base whether that is in like two or three villages in northern Serbia where a lot of paramilitaries disproportionately were taken from or recruited from, Mm -hmm. interestingly. In some cases, there were cousins as well. Like, um, There's a Serbian paramilitary group that was in eastern Bosnia and of the paramilitary group, like a fifth of them had the same last name. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is this matter. These are cousins and brothers going out, you know, literally band of brothers Mm -hmm. uh, going going out and, you know, uh, wreaking havoc. So this, I think this is very important, actually, to look at who um, the specter of the cultural specter of social banditry and of these param, paramilitaries um, really made people like Arkan to stay within the Serbian example really made them look like heroes who championed the poor and, and not as you know violent predatory you know acquisitive groups who, pro, who, who oppress also poor you know you know uh, poor you know, peasants or poor uh, urbanites. Mm-hmm. So. But um, this is partly because the uh, ordinary folks uh, they idolize these groups, they 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 lionize them. And you know? on the other hand, of course, they are also in the context of that conflict portrayed sometimes by the media or sometimes by political groups uh, as heroes. By particular political parties, for example, they mm-hmm. can often do that. And heroism is can be a very powerful motivator for for uh, for a lot of people.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Ur Unger, author of Paramilitarism, Mass Violence, in the Shadow of the State. You can find more information about his work on his Twitter feed, UrUmitUnger, spelled U-G-U-R-U-M-I-T-U-N-G-O-R. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast. So it sounds like... And this is maybe just self-evident, but most of the victims of these paramilitaries would would have been the poor. I can't imagine a situation where any anyone in the elites of the state or any privileged would would become victims. Maybe one or two, you know, political opponents, but but in mass killings, I imagine it was poor communities that suffered the most.
1: That is, uh, I think overall, that's correct. Um, whether it is a like Colombian paramilitaries uh, assaulting communities that were suspected of working with the FARC for example in the north of Colombia mm-hmm. right on the right on the ocean side there are a number of indigenous groups that were almost entirely wiped out uh, by by these paramilitary groups that were ethnically cleansed to these areas mm-hmm. um, um, but, but at the same time I mean if you look at some paramilitary groups who were uh, who were active like pro-state paramilitaries then like in Ivory Coast for example mm-hmm. uh, th- then you see that it's also the some of the critical intellectuals in society were also assaulted. Mm-hmm. So, or, or in Argentina, you would see that, for example, paramilitary death squads, especially. You saw, you saw that, uh, that they went after university professors and lawyers and doctors who were critical, journalists, mm-hmm. members of parliament who were critical of, of this policy of uh, 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 this escalating policy of counterinsurgency against those, uh, the communist rebel groups. Mm-hmm. There were a large number of people who, who thought, okay, you know, we understand that we have a counterinsurgency, but uh, to expand that violence towards civilians who may or may not support that uh, that insurgency is unacceptable. And so uh, a lot of those people were also assaulted by uh, by, by paramilitaries. Mm-hmm. For example, the, I mean, the Colombian or the Mexican paramilitaries, for example, uh, who, of course, sometimes overlap directly with the cartels. Uh, they are very, very violent towards journalists, for example, Mexican journalists or Colombian journalists in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were assassinated by paramilitaries because they obviously are searching for those shadowy links between the state and the, um, and, and the paramilitaries. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and I assume you, when you're using the word assaulted, you're including both, uh, intimidated, beaten, and then maybe even killed.
1: Yeah absolutely uh the violence so i I, have one chapter uh on the organization of paramilitarism and there's a section in it which is on the violence specifically because i mean you can't talk about paramilitaries without talking about violence of course so Mm -hmm. and and you see a a kind of wide variety of violence that they use uh against um uh, against their victims and that can be forced disappearances we open massacres in the villages where these people live. Uh, there can be threats sometimes. There is the case of um, so the Serbian paramilitary Arkan, who once beat up uh, an academic historian for writing uh, a book in which Arkan was portrayed as a warlord.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So you know, imagine you write a book and then the guy visits you and then beats you up in your house. I mean, mm-hmm. this actually happened to this uh, to this person.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's absolutely terrible. Mm -hmm. You have a wide range of violence, torture, for example, sexual violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's incarceration, for example, uh, extrajudicial uh, incarceration, extrajudicial executions. um, And there are a number of uh, massacres, including, for example, the Srebrenica massacre, uh, July 1995 in uh, eastern Bosnia, in which members of the Serb paramilitary group, uh, the Scorpions, uh, they and a number of other paramilitary groups uh, executed about 8,000 Bosnian Muslim men. Hmm. You know, that, that massacre was not run through the Bosnian Serb Army, but it was run through the paramilitaries.
0: Mm-hmm. So thinking about the fact that um, these paramilitary groups are protected by the state, um, so it's sort of a two-part question. You know, they can almost commit their violence with impunity. One, um, how much danger would would any would would these groups uh, be in in the various case studies, and two, why didn't you have just people flocking to groups that you know if you wanted to fight the enemy and and you can join a group with no rules and be allowed to kill with impunity I would imagine people certain types of people flocking to try to join these groups
1: yeah and, and in some cases that also happened or at least there was an attempt of some of these people who who tried to flock to these groups, but there of course, you have the um uh on, on the one hand you have paramilitaries or paramilitary groups that were kind of self uh let's say self self engendered so self selecting
2: mm.
1: right so um the moment that one or one or more of these governments one of these governments for example gave the impression to their population that hey we need people to help out win this war to win this conflict then oh yeah definitely a number of men got together and they uh banded together with very little training and very little discipline went into these sometimes in the battlefields or into these villages where the civilians of the enemy group uh, lived, and they committed some pretty bad violence against these people. That's on the one hand. But on the other hand, it was really without the space that the uh, state opened up to these groups, it was absolutely impossible for them to gain this much influence, to get all these weapons, to get training, uh, and to get these wide uh, kind of you know carte blanche of uh, of violence, of, of being allowed to commit violence against these civilian groups. So, uh, you you had a, a you know a load of paramilitaries, for example, in the war in Yugoslavia. You had a number of paramilitaries who you know showed up at the front that were totally useless, mm. or they were they, they were called weekend warriors.
2: Mm. You know,
1: people would just during the weekend would go to the front with their military gear, take a couple of selfies uh, with some photos with the guys, and then uh, get drunk. Uh, maybe kill some people, maybe burn some villages, and then come back. Mm-hmm. But that's not a very reliable source for the state uh, because in a lot of these operations, you need to, uh, very sensitive operations, you need to have a, a reliable base of people who also can keep secrecy, for example.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And secrecy is absolutely key, I think, in, in paramilitary uh, activities. Uh, if you can't keep secrecy, uh, then you also lose deniability. Mm-hmm.
0: And as far as the danger to these groups, it seems like mostly, except where they might have been in in more hot spots and in, in war zones, um, it seems that it was a pretty. It's kind of safe for them to go out and do their business.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, without the uh, the kind of the the, the war zone and the the um, um, the way that the uh, the state would allow violence to be committed in the war zone, these paramilitary groups couldn't really show up. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we also have to realize. I mean, in any w- situation of war, I um, mean, as a civilian, you can't just walk to the front and start, you know, start uh, engaging in like military zones that are totally prohibited and off limits for mm-hmm. civilians. You start taking photos there, or you start, um, or you're armed there, etc. You can even be uh, treated as an enemy combatant. So, w- without the knowledge of the state, or at least particular individuals and powerful elements within the state. Uh, there's no way that these groups can, uh, could have been so uh, could have been so powerful and committed and committed all this all this violence. And I think that this is where, uh, especially the intelligence agencies, in particular like military intelligence agencies, have been really really important because military secrets they're probably the most sensitive secrets of any state. Mm-hmm. And um, in the cases that I've studied, it's especially individuals who were involved in the military intelligence, like the powerful bosses of the military intelligence that were really, uh, really influential in setting up these groups.
0: Hmm. How many cases did you come across where, um, maybe the state had, had achieved its goals and maybe, you know, it was time, it felt it was time to put an end to whatever paramilitary group it was using, you know, ba- basically retire them. Uh, do you, do you have many cases like that? And, and do you have any situations where paramilitary groups might've resisted, uh, that,
1: Definitely. There are, um, I mean, in essence, you know, when their tasks are done, right. When the, uh, these, uh, violent acts have been, uh, have been consummated basically, uh, these, uh, these groups, they're very often, they, they're either reined in, uh, or they are deactivated. Uh, They're they're not entirely disbanded yet, but deactivated or put back in the, you know, on retainer, Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes the conflict flares up again, and then, they're, of course, they're re- reactivated again. So, and in these processes of deactivation or demobilization, uh, is probably one of the most difficult things, actually. So, you saw this already in the Freikorps, really, at the end of the First World War, when the German state and the, you know, the Austrian also, uh, state was, um, at least they, they tolerated some of these paramilitary groups with a nod and a wink. Uh, they kind of tacitly condoned some of their actions because they were great German patriots, etc. Mm-hmm. Then, after a while, they started uh, posing a problem for public order, for example, right? or, or they started fighting uh, violently with the police, right? who didn't want to be disarmed. Mm-hmm. So, the problem of blowback uh, is a major problem in almost all of these paramilitary And if you would have to like advise, like policy advice to a to a state that's about to embark on these paramilitary adventures, you actually want to advise them to not do it, or at least to have an exit strategy. Um, because there are two examples, and one thing one example that's really uh, telling of a failed de- uh, demobilization, uh, which is in Serbia, really. Uh, in Serbia, they, they created so many paramilitary groups uh, in the early 90s, that in the second half of the 1990s, from 95 on when the war ends, 95, 96, uh, Belgrade is a real is a very chaotic city. There's a lot of these former paramilitaries that have now branched out into organized crime, with kind of killing each other for turf wars, etc., things like that. And when these militias themselves were, when the Serbian state made an attempt in the late '90s and in the early 2000s to uh, to disband the groups or at least to try to integrate them into the regular armed forces, then uh, there was very serious blowback against them right? Uh, Mm -hmm. So uh, Zoran Jinjic was the former uh, uh, prime minister of Serbia. He started in 2001. And then in 2003, in March 2003, he was assassinated by one of these former paramilitaries Mm -hmm. because they refused to be demobilized because he was not only going to demobilize them, he was also going to look at the war crimes that were committed and maybe send them to the Yugoslavia tribunal in The Hague. So... You know, th- th- those uh, are you know, paths not taken, and those doors are closed. Mm. Once you start this and you, you sign, you put your signature onto those crimes, uh, then you have a problem because then later these guys can also turn against you. Um, and there are also uh, examples, for example, from Iraq. I mean, the most recent fight against ISIS, for example, was run by paramilitary groups. The Iraqi state allowed it and maybe needed it also to fight against ISIS, but now, of course, they refuse to disarm. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, on the one hand, they're arguing, well, we fought the ISIS war for you. Why would we disarm? We are the heroes of this conflict. And second, they've, of course, made an incredible, they've made incredible tentacles into the economy of that society of Iraq. Mm -hmm. uh, In that they refuse to to take, uh, you know, uh, to basically simply hand over their AK-47s and go back being a baker or being a blacksmith or these type of things. They don't want to do that.
0: Mm -hmm. I guess the state has to maintain its level of violence high enough that uh, the groups that it empowers don't uh, overtake it in time. Um, Definitely.
1: Uh, you, saw, you saw this also uh, you saw this also the skit. One last example is very interesting in that in 2011, when the demonstrations began in Syria, they were repressed, not with the vast course of apparatus that the Syrian uh, government had and still has, namely the intelligence agencies, the special forces of the army uh, and the police, but they actually set up these militias um who partly sectarian and partly super loyal to assad Mm -hmm. went to the streets and massacred the demonstrators and then gradually they seized so much power these people that so when the syrian army or the syrian police went to disarm these group these groups and to disband them as the guys you know thanks for your service now it's time to turn over power Mm -hmm. then uh, these militias refused starting from 2016 on you saw skirmishes even between the uh, the, the Syrian army and these Syrian paramilitaries. Mm-hmm. And then what do you do then? You basically, get, there's no other way to, uh, to, to disarm them because you were also touching upon, you know, these paramilitaries, they come from constituencies that are super, super loyal to Assad. Mm-hmm. So if you arrest the paramilitaries, you also lose those constituencies. So it's a real catch 22 for, a, for a regime that sets up paramilitary groups. It's very difficult to rein them in again.
0: Hmm. It's almost like you're creating a sort of a new political dynamic. You know, not, it's not just a, a, a law enforcement or a military dynamic. You're, you're giving people political power that, uh, maybe they didn't enjoy before. It's interesting.
1: That, absolutely. And you might even say that it's a form of social class formation. So these new groups, they, they become a, kind of a class, a social class, an economic class, and a political class in themselves. And they become a new reality in that society.
0: Um, and not and and so this question i don't want it to sound like flipping or something or just um but which group did you come across that was the most uh violent or destructive
1: that is an interesting one uh, i think that um uh, maybe maybe the syrian groups actually to to be honest because um as i said the 2011 uprising uh, against the The Assad government, uh, the government, the Assad regime, set up these militias, sent them on these communities, and basically gave them carte blanche to to do as they wish. And the violence that these militias committed were so disproportionate and so brutal, uh, from sexual violence and massacres to uh, to killing of children and infants, for example. This violence was so brutal that it really polarized uh, the uh, the victim communities and really turned the Dynamic of what would have been some mass demonstrations that could have been resolved in a different way, it turned it into a fully fledged civil war. Um, and then they didn't just stop there, these militias, but they, after a while, after having, let's say, cleaned out opposition uh, territory of civilians, repressing people, there's a lot of uh, predatory, like rent seeking. Um, starting from 2018 on, when Assad basically effectively had won the war, Mm-hmm. These groups they turned their weapons to loyalist areas, so they started to kind of uh, kidnap, for example, children of like pro-Assad businessmen mm. for uh, for ransom, or they started uh, putting up checkpoints between loyalist villages where there was absolutely no need to have checkpoints. Mm. But of course, the checkpoints you can, um, you know, you obviously, um, you know, you can make a lot of money on checkpoints by getting a lot of kickbacks and uh, bribes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so these, these things, they're ultimately, not only are destroyed opposition civilian communities, but also uh, loyalists. So they're, they're that destructive. And they're firmly in power, these people, right now in Syria. Um, there's no way that they can be unseated right now. I think it's going to be very, very difficult. And they're ultimately also a headache, not only for a kind of global order or for um, the international regime of human rights or, uh, or, or the rule of law, these type of things. But they're ultimately also a, a headache uh, case for, uh, for, the, for President Assad.
0: Mm-hmm. How much is the idea of paramilitaries, uh, the concept and and sort of their use connected to to globalism? You know, is is it that you know I, I imagine that states always used violence, however they needed to um, to control their population. But it feels like with you know United Nations and and countries watching each other and and, um, it seems that states would be more um, it would it would be more necessary for states to use these um, shadowy groups Um, can you comment on that
1: definitely i think that one of the reasons that uh, these paramilitary groups have emerged is because um, because of international human rights monitoring i mean there's a reason why throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century, paramilitarism becomes more and more sophisticated. Mm. So uh, these regimes that use these type of groups, they get better and better in um, in hiding and masking these type of groups, you know, obviously because they, they always want to disavow any linkages with these shadowy organizations mm. by claiming you know, these are private groups and they commit violence on their own volition. Mm-hmm. So this deniability which is key, it is absolutely you know key issue in all paramilitarism, is necessary for domestic reasons, right? So the electorate, if they find out that you've been doing these things, obviously you'll be punished at the ballot, or for the institutions, you can't just do whatever you want, but also for international reasons. So the threat of foreign intervention, monitoring by human rights NGOs, uh, the United Nations commissions that show up and they want to see what's going on here, uh, international criminal tribunals, I mean, the European Union was a, was a big deal, for example, in in trying and 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 prosecuting Serbian paramilitaries, uh, sanctions, for example, and sanction busting, to circumvent uh, embargoes, all these things, all these these globalist norms and developments, they were a major effect on uh, or challenges to regimes that wanted to set up paramilitary groups. Mm-hmm. It, it became more and more difficult, uh, but also the challenges became then to hide and to mask and to camouflage these groups better and better, mm-hmm. to the extent that. The former Sudanese president Omar al-Bashir, with the Janjaweed militias that uh, destroyed uh, most of Darfur, uh, or uh, President Assad of Syria, uh, they have been exceptionally sneaky, really, and very, very shrewd in in hiding these type of groups and distancing distancing themselves from them. So mm-hmm. They're also watching these trials against Milosevic, you know, thinking, okay, how are they going to tie this guy to these militias? Mm-hmm. I think that there's a kind of global learning process there as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what, uh, what resources did you and the other, um, the others involved with this book use for your research?
1: Yeah, this is, this is one of the most difficult things actually. So I get students, for example, who show up and they say, well, Professor Inger, I would love to study some paramilitary groups. Uh, How do I start? (laughs) And I tell, well, it's not that easy. Um, as in, you really have to kind of develop new methodologies uh, of how to approach and study these processes. So, um, you have to work, for example, with with leaks, or with kind of protected or anonymous sources. Interviews with victims or with survivors are extremely important because they have seen these militias in their at their worst hour, mm-hmm. and they've seen these militias do things that the government that employed these militias wants to uh, to deny, or mm-hmm. interested in suppressing that knowledge, for example. And so I think that um, we we need to, we need to you know you can't just walk up to a paramilitary group and say hey guys I'm an anthropologist and I'm interested in studying how you guys develop your culture of masculinity for example <laughs> I mean, that's just not a realistic way of approaching you know these these groups because mm-hmm. uh, you will I mean at worst you will be a victim of violence yourself and at best they will probably laugh at you or kick you out mm-hmm. although there's some really interesting Exceptions of people who miraculously, for one or the other way, uh, have gotten access maybe through patience or close personal relations or building up rapport Mm -hmm. with these groups that have been, that have made it. And I find that very uh, admirable. But mostly we're looking at, for example, court cases, uh, cases in which, for example, a tribunal has been able to get access to confidential and classified documents from that state. This is what the Yugoslavia tribunal did, for example. Mm-hmm. They had access to the Serbian Interior Ministry archive, uh, so they managed to get a lot of very interesting documents out. Uh, none of which, not you know, none of which were smoking gun. You know, but the whole point was, of course, not to have a smoking gun. So, sure. um, but through a um, kind of you know, circumstantial evidence and kind of circling around the the, the question, uh, one can actually construct a picture of, uh, of paramilitarism.
0: So what did you find? Um, what did you come across either your own research or, or the other research, um, that most surprised you?
1: Mm-hmm. What well, I thought was maybe most surprising. That's an interesting, uh, one. No, I think maybe I found it kind of surprising that, um, or para- yeah, maybe paradoxical or something that, that uh, in the in, in uh, the the foreign policy of the united states uh, that paramilitarism played such an important role such so, so for example in latin america operation condor it uh, meant really a paramilitarization of several societies including Colombia. Mm-hmm. some of these paramilitaries were trained in the u.s or by the u.s mm-hmm. uh, and always in covert ways by the way o- almost always in covert ways in ways in which for example the reagan administration could always say well you know, this is not our problem. We're also against these massacres, against the you know the workers of the Chiquita banana plants uh, by paramilitaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, we don't have any control over them. But the the interesting thing is, of course, now we have the National Security Archive, which mm-hmm. is uh, freely available. You can just go and research this stuff, and you see how uh, how shrewd actually the system was set up. And that's only in Latin America. I mean, Indonesia in 1965 is a terrific example as well. Um, And of course, in Europe, there are, there's always, always been rumors of Gladio, uh, the secretive organization that was nurtured as a part of US foreign policy against a a potential communist invasion. Mm -hmm. And these were supposed to be stay behind paramilitaries fighting against the communist occupier. Um, I have found very little evidence, let's say, that this was an exceptionally Influential scheme, uh, but there are some very good indications, especially from Italy, uh, from, uh, from Germany and from the, from Turkey, especially that are, but I think believable. And I think that was interestingly surprising for such a superpower like the U.S. to then resort to the kind of paramilitary staff section, which even existed in the CIA, uh, starting from the 1950s on. That was a little bit surprising to me.
0: Did you come across any situations? where paramilitary groups were used to stage attacks uh, that were to be blamed on the enemy, you know, sort of false false uh, flags operations, I think they're called.
1: There are a few examples of these, uh, but I've only found a few, to be honest. So um, you see that sometimes in Northern Ireland, um, when basically in Northern Ireland, you had uh, two major... Uh, loyalist paramilitary groups. You had, you had the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force, mm-hmm. and you had the UDA, the Ulster Defence Association. Both of these were uh, battling against the IRA. Um, and um, I mean, also interesting in itself. I mean, if the UK, you know, the British Army and the British intelligence and British police security forces uh, are so well trained and they're you know top of the top of the line, hyper modern uh, security uh, personnel. And why do they need these, these basically these tattooed thugs with their pumped up muscles and their weapons, right, in uh, Northern Ireland? that's I mean, that's a separate question. Mm-hmm. But what what happened is that these two groups, the UDA and the UVF, yes, they hated the IRA and they fought against the IRA and they committed a lot of violence against both combatants members and non-members of the island, so Catholic civilians. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also they had conflicts with each other. And when they had conflicts with each other, um, when... A member of one group or the other group was kidnapped and killed for example because of turf wars or because of some kind of personal slights or insults or whatever humiliations then they would very often dress up dress it up dress the whole violence up actually as a as an ira hit job so they mm-hmm. would commit violence against these people like the ira would for example generally do so that for example was a false flag operation very clearly and mm-hmm. yeah you know, ultimately if there were any false flag operations, they're also set up in such a way as not to be uncovered. So it's very difficult without like proper access to these mostly uh, you know intelligence files or you know, interior ministry archives or paramilitaries who, for example, um, uh, speak frankly on the record about these things mm-hmm. without any of these sources. We can't really know for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: So, I know that uh, obviously there's a lot of information you can't access or get to, but was there a particular say question or issue among all these cases that you would have really liked to get an answer to for whatever reason?
1: Oh yeah, uh, there are quite a few actually mm. uh, actually, I would have loved to um because of the the uh really the categorical nature of his denials uh Slobodan Milosevic who throughout five wars of paramilitary destruction in Bosnia mm-hmm. he denied that he his government as the Serbian government had anything to do with these groups they asked him about Arkan and he just said i don't know the guy ah, he's a bad guy but never never heard about him nonsense of course he was totally funding them arming them they were secretly meeting sometimes now we know from kind of defected uh, officials mm-hmm. but i would have loved to have seen for example those minutes during which uh, a head of state like Milosevic would sit down with a thug like Arkan. I mean, what would they even talk about? Would, that would have been a, hila- a very interesting, I think, and also very insightful uh, insightful event. Mm-hmm. Uh, a second, maybe final example here is one of the things, or, let's say one of the major uh, events that uncovered the Turkish system of paramilitarism in the 1990s was a car crash that happened in November 1996. Uh, and there was a Mercedes, one of the you know, Mercedes 600 uh, class tinted windows, black Mercedes. It crashed into a truck um, in an accident, one of the traffic accidents that happened a lot in Turkey in those years.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And there were four passengers in the Mercedes. Three of them died. One of them survived. Now, the interesting thing was who were these people who were in the in the car? So there was, the sole survivor was a member of parliament for the... Uh, for, for the uh, uh, party in the government coalition, mm-hmm. and at the same time he was chief of a of a tribe, of a Kurdish tribe in the southeast. Mm-hmm. At the same time, head of his paramilitary uh, uh, organization. The second, per- the the other three people who died were really interesting. One of them was the head of the Turkish police in Istanbul. Uh, and the other one was the top mob boss. Uh, since the 1970s, a guy called Abdullah Mm Çatlı. Also Çatlı's girlfriend was in the car, right? Mm. So what are these people doing in the car together? And what what we found out, what lots of decades of research really found out, Mm -hmm. is that this was really a knot uh, in this paramilitary entanglement uh, in which basically the Turkish government, represented by... Uh, the head of police and the member of parliament, they outsourced paramilitary violence to these mob bosses who then would mobilize people uh, to go and commit violence against Kurdish civilians in the southeast. This has been called the Susurluk uh, scandal after the town of Susurluk, in western Turkey, where it happened. Hmm. Uh, and I would have loved to have, for example, have any you know details or information about what these people were doing in the car and where were they going um, and what type of conversations were they having? And these things would have been really interesting, but unfortunately, subsequent Turkish governments have not been able to shine any light and bring full transparency and accountability to this uh, uh, paramilitary entanglement.
0: Yeah, you know, one of the one of the most unfortunate uh, things about paramilitarism, apart from the actual violence, is that the fact that so many governments use them, I I think, creates sort of a global cynicism. Not among everyone, but, you know, large numbers of people, you know, develop a cynicism that all governments are uh, engaged in shadowy use of violence. And, um, you know, the more you uncover, it seems like, you know, who, who's innocent in all this? You know, not to condone it, but, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's that's one of the, the problems there. So I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know if you have yeah. any comments, but that's just something I, I noted.
1: Definitely. I think that beyond cynicism, there's also the fact that the public, you know, uh, whether it's Colombians or or, or or Yugoslavs or or people in Turkey or in Chechnya, they, you know, they see these things happening. They see this terrible violence happening and they develop not only cynicism, but also a sense of obscurantism in that it is impossible to know what's really going on. Mm-hmm. There's no point searching for the truth because the, the truth won't come out anyway. So they kind of start almost to normalize this type of violence in these these paramilitary relations, mm-hmm. and I think that that type of um, uh, like uh, kind of moral abandonment or moral uh, defeat I think is also a major is also a major problem because then you basically lose indeed as you say you become cynical um and you give up even on pursuing the truth about these these
0: groups. And then I think that attitude can also lead to the creation of other violent groups um, based on this this anger and confusion and, and, you know, all these things combined. So I think it kind of feeds itself in a vicious cycle.
1: It can become a vicious cycle. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you see that right now in the streets in the United States where some of these militias are, let's say, overly friendly with the police. Mm-hmm. And you might have to argue, you know, doesn't the police have to disarm these people and you know, send them home because um, uh, that's where the collusion really starts. You know, I, I would be very interested to hear more about, uh, or to learn more about how certain police forces, for example, in uh, in uh, Philadelphia or in Wisconsin, how they, uh, let's say, are friendly towards some of these militias or they tolerate them various ways, mm-hmm. and and this is where you kind of when the government or when a state uh, institution like the police that's supposed to be. Impartial. When they start taking sides mm-hmm. in these conflicts into the streets, that's when that's when really dangerous ground. I think, unfortunately.
0: Did you have any uh, difficulties getting the book uh, finished or published?
1: Uh, not really. I think um, I um, I think there was a lot of interest in this uh, in the topic. Uh, the paramilitarism was was relevant in, let's say, several uh, societies. and was still globally also relevant uh, when I finished the book. Um, but I think it will be – what I try to do with this book is to build a bridge between these case study uh, experts, this you know specific literature on Latin America or Indonesia or other countries, and to get a conversation going between the different colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is maybe not the first book that does it. And there are other books like Ariel Ahram, for example, Proxy Warriors, terrific book also. Uh, we'll also try that, but I try to take it a little bit further. Um, and to to develop that conversation, to create that space that we can where we can have that conversation. Mm-hmm.
0: So what's your next um, either writing or editing project?
1: Well, it's actually on paramilitaries again, but, but I'll mm-hmm. tell you why. Um, th- this book has uh, three major chapters. One is like a, the long history of paramilitarism in the 20th century, uh, a chapter on organized crime, and a chapter on the organization of paramilitarism. And, and because this is relatively abstract, or relatively conceptual, theoretical. I wanted to include a chapter originally, which was a case study on the Syrian paramilitaries that I just mentioned to you. But that research got really, it got kind of out of hand, it spun out of control, I kind of collected lots of material, I did lots of interviews with eyewitnesses and victims, but also with paramilitaries themselves. I managed to We managed to talk to these people on Skype, on Facebook, uh, I even met some of these people uh, in person. Mm-hmm. Um, and collected a really interesting kind of body of knowledge on uh the motives the um the violence that these guys committed and the way that they reflect back on this uh on this period in the period in the past decade let's say in Syria mm. um and, and that was so initially was supposed to be only a chapter but it really it grew in size and i got more and more engrossed into the topic as well is that now I'm making a spin-off book uh which is supposed to be uh, it is provisionally called Assad's militias and mass violence in Syria, mm-hmm. in which we look much more empirically in, in the example of Syria, uh, of exactly how these militias have uh, functioned uh, and how they have fared in the past 10 years.
0: Mm-hmm. Where can people find you on uh, on the web? Do you have social media or web page or anything like that?
1: Yes, uh, you can go to uh, ungor.nl, U-N-G-O-R dot uh, I also have a Twitter feed. Uh, you can also look at that every once in a while.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And the Twitter name?
1: Uh, the Twitter name is is Uber uh, Umit Unger. So, my first, my middle, and my last name. Okay. I think if you search on Twitter and my name, then you basically find it.
0: And I'll spell that for listeners. It's.
1: Yeah. So, U G U R U M I T and then U N G O R. That's my last name.
0: Okay. All right. Um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words?
1: Uh, well, thank you for uh, for doing this interview. It's been a it's been a pleasure actually to you know, to speak to you, uh, and I hope maybe when I'm done with the Syria book, I'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about that as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, this was really interesting. Thank you very much for speaking with me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it and review it if possible. I have many other options as well to get great military history information. You can find links to interesting military history videos on my Facebook page, War Scholar. You can find links to interesting military history news articles, military history archaeology information, and academic information on my Twitter page, War Scholar. You can find photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez, War Scholar. You can find my military history videos on my YouTube page, War Scholar 1945 You can also sign up for my newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. In the newsletter, I post additional video and news links, as well as regular updates on new military history books being published. Thank you for listening.